You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Me and my family, we love to camp, and we love to travel around the state, and we've been outside of the state a few times camping, and we just... We love that experience. I, I love museums. I love seeing uh, and learning about things that are historical, things that are new. And so a few months ago, we were up at Brasstown Bald, the highest point in the state of Georgia. And we were there camping for a couple of nights. And they have a museum there. We hiked up to the top of Brasstown Bald, looked out. It was beautiful, very scenic in the fall, so it was real nice. Uh, but before you go through the museum they have there at Brasstown Bald, and this is for most museums or if you take any sort of uh, visitor center trips, what they do before you go and look through all the artifacts, all the different interesting facts there at, uh, at the museum is they usually have a, a brief video at the visitor center. To basically recap, here's how we got to this point. Here's what's so important about this. Here's the history of this, uh, of this, um, uh, of this information, of this mountain, of the folks who used to live here, of the land, of the animals, of all these different things. So we went and we sat and we watched this video of Brasstown Bald, uh, looking to see, okay, well, I need to understand a little bit about this. That way, when I go to then walk around and look at all the detailed parts of the state of Georgia and all uh, that, that's there in the museum, I would have a better understanding and a better grasp. Because now, okay, here's the big picture, bird's eye view, a little bit of history. Now those things become way more meaningful to me. So for the past two weeks, what we've seen in, in Judges chapters one and two is that video there that's at the visitor center. And so the, the author of Judges has said, here's where we're going. Here's some big picture stuff. Here's what you're going to take away from this. Here's what you're going to see. Kind of here's where the, the people of Israel have been. Here's what's going to happen. Here's where they're going. Here's why this is important. So in chapter one, if you haven't been with us, Chapter 1 of Judges, it's in the Old Testament, seventh book of the Bible. You can go there with me. We're going to be in Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7. But if you look at the first chapter, it talks about all the socio-political conquest of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And it says they were here, and this is what happened, and it's a, it's a geographical and political recounting of the people of Israel. And it's almost like reading a history or a geography book. And it's kind of like, man, this is, this is kind of dry. But, but we have to see that to understand here's what the people of Israel, here's what they were doing, where they were doing it. Then we get to Genesis, uh, sorry, to Judges chapter 2, and all throughout chapter 2, the author is telling us about the spiritual significance. So chapter 1 is the geographical and political significance of the people of Israel during this time. Chapter 2 was the spiritual significance. If you notice there, God hardly speaks about the people surrounding. He actually says, he, he talks about his people kind of in like the second person, like those, those people over there, and he talks in general about the people surrounding Israel. He talks about the, the nations surrounding them. There's not so much detail except for the spiritual nature. And then he says, here's what you're going to see throughout the book of Judges is this seven-step cycle of sin, rebellion, God getting mad, his wrath, and the people cry out because they hate that judgment. And then his mercy, then there's rest and there's peace in the land because of a judge. Then after a few years of rest, people are like, wait, we love our idols. We're going to run back to those in this cycle over and over and over and over again. So as we get to chapter three this morning, we're going to see that same thing. And so this is, we've got, okay, here's where we're going. Expect these things. We're going to look at three different judges this morning in chapter three, and we're going to see, okay, now we understand where we've been. We've seen, we've watched the visitor center video. Now let's get into the details. So judges chapter three, we see this <clears throat> 
beginning in verse number seven. He talks about three guys here, and altogether there are 12 judges throughout this book. Some are men, some are women. But the first one we see here, and we can see uh, the pericope at the beginning, those little the words in bold that are kind of at the top of a lot of chapters, those are called, that's called pericope. It, uh, peri meaning it gives you like this general idea. It sets the, the bounds for this. And so the first one we see there is a judge named Othniel. Now that, that word right there at the end, if you see a word that has the E-L at the end, like all three of my names do, first, middle, and last name, that's the word God in the Hebrew. So my parents did that intentionally, but it kind of makes for a, a, a mouthful. So Michael, Daniel, Powell, uh, heard that a few times when I was a kid. Verse number seven, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to see this a dozen times in this book. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the land of Cushan Rithathame, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rithathame eight years. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, our first savior, our first judge, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Remember Joshua and Caleb? The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathame, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. We see here this guy, and so it kind of begins bad, and it ends with his death, which we know is bad when we keep reading, it's, it's still bad. But right here, we see all of these cycles, and it's like the, the people cried out, this is good. This is, by the way, the only time when that seven-step cycle works out cleanly in the book of Judges. Often, the people don't cry out. Or when they do, God's like, you know what? I think you need a little bit more. But right here, we have this ideal sense. And so when we look at the book of Judges as a whole, it's just this continual downward spiral into sin. It never stops. It gets worse and worse. But what we have right here, including the judges, the judges as individuals get worse and worse. But right here we have Othniel. He's an ideal leader. He's actually a pretty good guy. And if you see there uh, in verse number, let's see, he was empowered by the Spirit it says the spirit came upon him, which is interesting because in the Old Testament, when we see the spirit coming upon people, looking at a, a spiritual revival, the spirit comes upon one person. But when we look and we compared Acts to the book of Judges a couple weeks ago, when we look at the New Testament, when the spirit comes down and empowers people, it doesn't empower just one person. It often empowers a whole people. So we have here the spirit of God. Look at verse number eight. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them. He's the one who sold them. And we're like, man, I thought God was nice. If your God is nice and he couldn't do this, then you're not serving this God because this is his word. And this is what he says about himself. It says that he sold them. Now, even in judgment, God is showing mercy. Here's why. Because ultimately he wants his people to repent. He wants his people to turn back to him. And how are they to realize their spiritual enslavement Unless he says, you physically and spiritually are jacked up. I have to remind you of that. So even when he sells them into slavery, sells them uh, into the hands of their enemies, he says, I'm doing this so you can repent. Repentance, and we see this here in the, in the story of Othniel, repentance is necessary for renewal and restoration. Restoration 
repent, restoration, revival, delivery is always going to come from God's chosen Savior in the way that he wants that to happen. Always. And often, as we've seen so far in this book, it goes contrary to what we would assume would happen. So we see the people here, they cry out. And crying out, by the way, is the right response to any sort of oppression. And we see this a lot today. We've seen this for years. We've seen it in my entire generation. I'm, I'm 36. Uh, I've seen this my whole life, and I've heard about this. Hey, we just need to cry out to God as a nation. I agree with that. I'm good with that. I'm, I'm fine with us crying out to God as individuals, as families, as a church, as a nation, as a world, whatever that, I'm fine with that. But here's my question. If we feel like we are being oppressed in whatever means, whether it's physically, spiritually, emotionally, politically, whatever that oppression looks like, my question for you is what are you crying out for? So in other words, we can say, man, we are just oppressed in whatever way, any one of those ways. What does healing look like? What are you crying out for? What is the salvation that you're crying out for? Is it a better leader? Is it a different leader? Is it, man, if we just had more money, if we were more successful, if we just had any of these things, if any of those things are except for the church to be the church, then they are wrong. What we should be crying out for, I would say as a nation and as a church, is for the church to be the church. So for us, we're like, man, look at the New Testament church. Look at the first century church. And some folks are like, we just want to be a first century church. I'm like, I don't think you do. Look at the oppression they were experiencing. They were literally being put to death because of what they believed. Is that what you want to do? Because that's what spiritual renewal looks like. And I would say, as we cry out, what are we actually crying out for? I'm great with revival, with renewal, but just understand what we are asking for is to look more and more like Jesus. If we are crying out for anything else, then we are crying out selfishly. So we see the people here, they're oppressed, they cry out. I saw a, um, a post by Mark Dever the other day on Instagram, and, uh, and he actually, he screenshot some notes, and he preached a sermon 20 years ago. It was from like 2000 or 2001. And uh, he said this in his sermon. He said, we cry out for revival in America. We as a church cry out for that 20 years ago. He said, we cry out for that, but why would God want to bless us when the church is so disobedient? Please bless us, please. Is that what these people were crying out here in the book of Judges? No, they were saying, we've messed up. We are sorry. Please forgive us. We need the mercy of God, not the blessing of God because we've been so obedient. When does the blessing of God fall? That was in the book prior. That's in Joshua. The blessing of God hits the people of God when they are obedient to God. Do we deserve revival or renewal or restoration? Absolutely not. We deserve judgment just like these folks. And so we should be pleading not first for revival, but first for God's mercy. So the people here, they are oppressed and they cry out and they cry out for God's mercy. And it says there in verse number 11, so the land had rest for 40 years. We, by the way, church, side note, are not crying out for 40 years of rest or even four years of rest. 
We are looking to a Savior in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. It says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, and he is bringing his kingdom here to earth, and he is going to reign peacefully forever. So even this 40 years, these people are like, yeah, the, the land was at rest. Notice it doesn't say they were at rest spiritually, emotionally. It says the land physically was at rest. Don't over-spiritualize this. It was at rest. So that's Othniel. That's the first guy. Second guy we see here, his name is not Ehud, as I'll probably say it, but it's Ehud is the way you should say it. So I'm going to do my, do my darndest. We'll see what happens. Ehud. Now, what we can't do with, with this passage as we read this, we, we can't uh, allegorize this. So early church fathers, one of their downfalls is they would create allegories out of everything. And they would say, well, it says this, but the underlying, the hidden meaning is this. We can't do this with this passage. We'll get in trouble real quick. We can't moralize this next passage. We'll get in trouble real quick. We can't really even principalize this passage. We have to understand this is Old Testament and these guys heard from God directly. This is a different time, different place. Okay. So that's my precursor. So don't take this and be like, hey, I want to be like Ehud. No, not a great idea. Here's what he does. But what we're going to see is that he's God's savior, interestingly enough. Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. Now notice here, there's not just one enemy that Othniel had to defeat. Now the enemies have multiplied. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, the city of Palms there is Jericho. That's what that literal city is. So this is a nice little reference that the author is putting in here. Hey, remember when you were obedient and God was victorious on your behalf when he crushed the wall? Well, guess what? Now you're disobedient and he is not going to bless you. Now he's bringing curses. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. So put that kind of in the back of your cap. This guy, Ehud, is a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now, Here's what we see here. Verse 15, it says that he was a left-handed man. There in the, uh, in the Hebrew, it actually says he had to use his left hand. So what that means probably is that this guy was handicapped in some way. He was unable to use his right hand. He wasn't like my brother Matthew who says, you know what? I'm going to be smarter and better than the rest of you. I'm going to use my left hand instead. No, he probably had to. He had some sort of disability. Now, here's what's interesting about left-handed people. Uh, we live in a right-handed world. My, my brother Matt, we were about to go on a mission trip uh, several years ago, several years ago. Um, and uh, so we went to Home Depot, and he had to get a hammer for this mission trip. And uh, he was probably in his 20s. But I said, uh, I said, hey, go over and ask that guy because we had his list of things he needed to get. And uh, I said, you need a hammer in this. He said, what kind of hammer? I said, well, a left-handed hammer, of course. So he goes over <laughs> at Home Depot and asks this guy. He says, excuse me, sir. And this is an older man. He said, I'm, I don't see any left-handed hammers. And the guy said, you know what? We are completely out of stock. <laughs> So my brother walks back and tells me that. And I was like, all right, all right, this is cool. I was like, sorry, buddy, I guess you got to use a different one. So uh, in our world, though, it's mostly a right-handed world. 
Me and my, my sons and, and my wife, we enjoy playing Uno almost every night. And if you hold your cards the right way, they're made for a right-handed person. Any, any lefties in the room? Raise your hand if you're a lefty. Yeah, y'all know what's up. Yeah, it stinks, right? Your, your zipper's on the wrong side. Your buttons are on the wrong side. When you write, you look like a, a four-year-old because you just can't write the right right, right, right. I, I'm right-handed. I can't speak the right way. Uh, but, but like this, life is a little more difficult. Even in the Latin, the word left-handed means a weakness. That's what it means in the Latin. It means strange. So that's just kind of how we're used to things. But here's what's interesting about left-handed people. Left-handed people, there's a higher chance that your IQ is going to be over 140. So usually left-handed people are a little bit smarter than right-handed people. Left-handed people, somebody said amen. I don't know who that was. We're gonna, I'm, all the right-handed are going to gang up against you later. Uh, we still outnumber y'all. Left-handed people can, can actually see better underwater. There's an advantage you didn't know. Oh, well, that makes sense. Left-handed people, if you're playing sports, you have an advantage because I'm used to guarding a right-handed player or you're used to, used to hitting off of a right-handed pitcher. And so if you're left-handed, you don't have to throw as fast because people aren't used to seeing you, so you have an advantage there. So right-handed, left-handed. For our purposes today, we're going to stick with the traditional. Left-handed people are kind of disadvantaged, okay? So, sorry. So when we look at Ehud, what it means is he had a disability. He used his left hand. He wasn't that strong. He needed help. We, saw, we see in verse number 16, he makes a double-edged sword, and he put it on his which side? He, he put it on his right thigh. Now, this is important because you would always put the sword on your opposite thigh. He puts it on his right thigh so he can use his left hand. Now, when he goes in to see the king, here's why that's important. It's because the guards are probably going to check his left side, if they check him at all, because everybody was right-handed. I mean, I know some of y'all, if you're, if you're older, even your teachers in school, I've heard about this, that the teachers would dissuade you from being left-handed, right? They would, no, 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 put, put your fork in the other hand. Put your pencil in the other hand. My grandma thought my brother was you know, demon-possessed for years because he was blonde hair, blue-eyed, and left-handed, my half-brother. I mean, I'm just kidding. He's my real brother. I think, but he was just so different than the rest of us. It's like, what's wrong with this kid? So, so the guards wouldn't even notice that he put this sword on his right side. Verse number 17. Y'all can't take this too seriously. It says this, and he presented the tribute of Eglon to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I read several commentaries on this. And people tried to allegorize it and spiritualize it and moralize it and philosophize about it and principalize this. Uh, but I read one older guy, and he said, look, man, he said, all this means is this guy who's writing this, he's just making a joke about this guy. It's nothing important, nothing spiritual. But we still get the idea of, of Luke Skywalker in front of Jabba the Hutt as he comes in, okay? So, so this guy says that Eglon, king of Moab, is a very fat man. He's huge. Verse 18 and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, so he brings a gift to him, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So now at the end of verse 18, it's Ehud and Eglon in the room. Uh, Ehud has dismissed all the good guys. So it's uh, the very fat king and all of his guards, and Ehud's standing here. Verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, wait, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. So we see here, uh, Ehud brings this gift to Eglon. 
and says, here's the gift from the people of Israel. Please be merciful to us. Eglon says, okay, thanks, good. And so he starts to walk back out. All the good guys go back out. He says, wait, king, I have a secret message for you. And it's written here on this sheet of paper. And then Eglon's like, man, this is awesome. Secret message? He sends out his attendants. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose from his seat. Now, when Eglon, the king, sees this guy, is he threatened by this crippled guy? No. This guy came and used half of his body. He came and used his right hand. So he's not threatened by this guy. Ehud's not dangerous at all. Verse 21. So it's just at this point, Ehud and Eglon sitting together. All the attendants are gone. It's just them two. Verse 21. And Ehud, so he says, I'm going to walk up to you and tell you the secret message from God. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Gets better. And the hilt also went in after the blade, which is the the part that separates your hand from the blade. It also went into his belly, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Some of y'all are like, yeah, yeah, like gladiator style. Then Ehud, I actually think uh, Ehud, by the way, is probably a little more like Nicolas Cage um, than somebody like Jason Momoa. Okay, like if we got Othniel, he was like Jason Momoa. Maybe Joshua was uh, the rock, you know. But Ehud is like Nicolas Cage. He's coming up with secret messages. And he's just a little small guy who, um, after that movie, like his career was just shot. And so Ehud, nothing, nothing becoming about him at all. He sticks the blade in, all the way in, and the dung comes out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now, notice what's going on here. Verse number 22, uh, by the way, if you're looking for a new life verse, if you're a senior or if you want to put a verse on a coffee mug, this would be awesome. And the hill went on the blade and the fat closed over the blade. He did not pull out the sword of his belly and the dung came out. So if you're, if you're bored with Jeremiah 29, 11 or whatever else you want to take out of context, just take this one out of context. It's way more fun. So he says it goes in. So then, so he puts him out, he dies, the dung, his guts and literally his dung all fell out of him. So Uh, Eglon, uh, the really fat king, is sitting on top by himself. Nobody else has heard him die. Ehud walks out. He shuts the doors behind him. All right, I gave him the secret message. And so he starts walking through, and he walks on out. Verse 24, when he had gone, the servants came. (laughs) And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Now, why would they think that he's relieving himself? Because it smelled terrible. Because his dung came out. So they walk up to check on the king, and they're like, oh, gone. He must be relieving himself. What else would he be doing in there? Ehud already left. Verse 25. And they waited till they were embarrassed. Who's writing this? Is it these guys? No. It's, It's the scribe of the Lord. He's making fun of these guys. They were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there their Lord lay dead on the floor. Verse 26. So what's Ehud up to? He's taking his slow self on out of town. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. 
When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. All, notice the next word, strong, able-bodied men. Interesting. This one handicapped guy helped defeat 10,000 strong, able-bodied men. I said, this guy helped. Who's the one who defeated them? The Lord. He said, the Lord has provided victory for us. It says, not a man escaped. So Moab, verse number 30, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Not for 40 years with a strong leader in Othniel that we saw over in verse 11, but for 80 years because of Ehud, this handicapped guy who stuck a blade into the very fat king's belly. Was that Ehud's plan? Did he come up with that himself? That's the Lord working through him. Here's what we see about Ehud. God does not always work by what we call normal methods. God does not always work by what we call normal methods. Here's, here's a quote. I have this on my phone. This will be up on the screen. Here's a quote that I, I saw this past week uh, from Spurgeon. And he, he, he preached back in the 1800s. He's called the Prince of Preachers. Go read his stuff. He said this to his congregation in 1856. He said, he who would place himself in front of a fast-moving railway car will be crushed and would be no more foolish than you who are opposing the gospel. If the gospel is true, truth is mighty and it will prevail. Who are you to attempt to stand against it? You will be crushed. But let me tell you, when the railway car runs over you, the will will not even be raised an inch by your size. For what are you? A tiny gnat? He keeps going. <laughs> he, does, he doesn't leave this as a rhetorical question. A tiny gnat? A creeping worm? Which that will will crush to less than nothing and not leave you even a name as having ever been an opponent of the gospel. Let everyone in the world know assuredly that the gospel will win its way, whatever they may do. Poor creatures. Their efforts to oppose the gospel are not even worthy of our notice. And we need not fear that they can stop the truth. They are like a gnat who thinks he can quench the sun. Go, tiny insect, and do it if you can. You will only burn your wings and die. Likewise, there may be a fly who thinks it could drink the ocean dry. Drink the ocean dry if you can, old fly. More likely, you will sink in it, and it will drink you. God will not be mocked. God will not be opposed. The truth will prevail. 4,000 years ago and today, the truth will prevail when we are facing opposition, when we are facing depression, when we have issues in life, what are we running to? Are we running to normal methods or are we running to Jesus Christ who gave himself rather than us saying, I want something to give themselves to me. So we have here Othniel, we have Ehud, and we have one more verse. This guy is Shamgar. He gets one verse in the Bible. This is all we ever hear about him. 
Verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So he started with uh, a, a pretty bad dude. So we started with Jason Momoa, we got down to Nicolas Cage, and now we got this other pretty bad dude. We've got, we've got Shamgar. And so he takes an ox goad. By the way, it says that he's son of Anath. That's not an Israelite name. This dude, God was like, man, I have used somebody who's strong, y'all Y'all rejected him. I used somebody who's weak, but he's still an Israelite. Y'all rejected him. You turned. Now I'm going to use Shamgar. He's not even an Israelite, and we're going to see what happens. But he helped to save the Israelites, the grace and mercy of God. So it says he used an ox goad to kill 600 of the Philistines. An ox goad was used when they were plowing up ground. It had a big round end for you to hang on to and a point on the other end. It was used to help goad the oxes. That's what it was there for. He took that and killed 600 Philistines, strong, able-bodied men. Here's what, I, and that's not all we really know about Shamgar. We can't pontificate too much further, but here's what I want us to see from Shamgar. I think this is just a salvation break between failures. I think God is like, man, just imagine if you believed in me and trusted in me and kept following me. This dude took this, which is nothing, a farming tool and slaughtered 600 men by himself. That's pretty wild. So when we look, when we look here at chapter three, we, we see a couple of things. One, this is, this is really cool that God does not leave his people. He could have easily, we could have easily finished chapter one or chapter two. And it's like, that's all the book of Judges because God wiped out the Israelites. But no, he kept them here. His mercy is on display. And not only does he keep them here, he doesn't just speak from heaven and say, okay, I'm gonna wipe these folks out for you. He gets there, he gets dirty. He gets in the midst of them. He's not with a, Lysol, a can of Lysol over here just spraying them like, ah, just get away from me. I wanna have you sanitized. He says, no, I wanna get in there with you and get his hands dirty the way that Ehud got his hands dirty with Eglon, right? He says, I wanna be right here in the midst of you, whatever it takes, because you're so messed up. That's the good news of this chapter. But here's the bad news. And we saw this in chapter one. We saw it in chapter two in verse number 10. We see it right here beginning in verse number seven. We saw it again in verse number 12. These people, they forget God. The sad news of this chapter is that they knew God in their minds, but that knowledge did not result in obedience and action. What they knew about God did not result in obedience and action. They still disobeyed and forsook God. When I was in middle school, I was at my Uncle Mike's house, and, uh, and he wanted to teach me how to ride a dirt bike. And uh, it was, I don't know if it was very powerful, I don't know, but I was a real genius kid. And so I got on, yeah, how difficult could it be? It's uh, basically like a bike with a motor. So you just get on and crank it up, hit a button, you know, I don't know where the brake is, who needs the brake, you know, <laughs> hardcore. And so tell me where the gas is, and I'll figure it out. And I just, you just turn the, the, the uh, handlebars at the top, whatever they're called. And so I jumped on that dirt bike, and no lie, uh, he said, okay, you don't need anything else? I'm like, no, nah, I got it, man. I'm golden. Middle school. I knew everything. So I jumped on, hit the gas. By the time I did, uh, I took off into the woods and slammed right into a tree. And dirt bike fell over. I hopped off. I was like, all right, well, that's my dirt bike experience. <laughs> People are like, you ride dirt bikes? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I ride dirt bikes. Yeah. I've, I've ridden dirt bikes, yeah, you know, in the past I did. That was it. I was on it for about four seconds. Boom, smash into a tree. You would look at me and say, well, you are a fool because you should, have, you should have turned. In the moment, I thought, yes, I should have turned. You say, well, that's irrational. I say, yes, I agree. And even in the midst of my irrationality, it is still true that I smashed into a tree. Just because I knew what to do, that if I keep going straight, I'm going to hit that tree 
doesn't mean that I turn. You're like, yeah, you're really slow. That's fine. You can say whatever you want to say. But bondage of sin is the same way. Just because we know that we should be going this way or that way doesn't mean that we stop. Doesn't mean we stop pulling the gas, pressing the gas. I don't know what it is. Doesn't mean we hit the brake. Bondage of sin is that way. And the reason is because we're not experiencing the presence and nature of God. All it is is information lodged between our ears, never taking root in our daily lives. And brothers and sisters, that is insufficient to become more and more like Jesus Christ. When he talked about in chapter 2 and verse number 10, it says, they did not know the Lord. We said this a couple weeks ago, but it was a, it was a term of intimacy. Do we just know about the goodness of God or do we know the goodness of God? Are we thankful for the goodness of God? Do we know about the forgiveness of God but don't share that forgiveness of someone else? Or do we experience the presence of God by forgiving others because we're living like him? I'm afraid that what's happened is that we used to experience the presence and nature of God. But when we turn our back on that experiencing nature and even run to information, really good, just head knowledge, what happens is what we know to be true about God in our hearts and with our hands, in our heads, it becomes unreal to us. The way that we know and experience God must be done by living lives that are devoted to him. It must be out of action and obedience because what happens when God becomes unreal to us, the idols that we worship become more real to us in our hearts, in the things that we value, and we begin to worship them. Tim Keller used this illustration. He said, take a bucket of water on a really cold day. He said, set it outside, and what's that bucket of water going to do? The top of it's going to begin to freeze over. And if you don't go over there and break the ice, the entire bucket will eventually freeze over. He says, that's the, that's the way that we are with our hearts. Unless we are running back and saying, no, I want to get rid of these idols. I want to crush these idols the way I'm crushing the ice at the top of this bucket. I want to pursue the holiness and glory of God. Unless we do that, it's going to be completely frozen over. We have to go back constantly, constantly saying, I want to pursue Jesus. I want to know more about who he is. I want to say no to the flesh. I want to say no to these idols. It's a constant battle day in and day out. Here's for, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. It says this. This will be up on the screen. But 2 Peter chapter 1 says this. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, here, here's some qualities, here's knowledge, but the ultimate goal is to produce fruit, tangible, real, experiential fruit in your life for the sake of those around you. Verse number uh, 10, 9, uh, for whatever, whoever lacks these qualities is, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Therefore, brothers, speaking to the church, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. How do you know that you're a believer? For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, obey and your faith will be made sure. 
But then verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He says, I have to remind you of these things. He doesn't say, hey, just be reminded of the gospel. Hey, be reminded of Jesus. No, he says, I need to remind you to live in brotherly love and kindness. If forgiveness and salvation are real to you, how are they making a difference in your life? How is your commitment to Christ and your redemption, how is it changing the way that you live? How is your character different? And the thing that I would ask is how can we be reminded? How can we as his people be reminded of this truth? In a few ways, I'll give you some real practical tips and then we'll go back to this passage in Judges or a few practical steps. Uh, The first is to read the word, to be reminded of the character and nature of God. Me standing up and reading this word is insufficient for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Me standing up here for, um, at this point, almost my entire time is insufficient for you to grow in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. You must be spending time in the word on your own. We have to be spending time in prayer, growing in our dependence on Christ. Here, here's, uh, I, I read several of the prayer requests from this past weekend. We had 61 people participate in our 24 hours of prayer, and it was amazing. It was great. Going in there and reading the requests, I was literally just weeping for almost the entire hour at the needs of those in our body, of those who need salvation, of the needs that we have physically for those in our body, of those in broken marriages. I wrote down, here's, here are the, the topics that I saw from those requests. Broken marriages, decisions on jobs and selling homes, for healing, for cancer, for COVID, for other things. There's a lack of church engagement by family members. There's a desire to know God more. Salvation of lost children, of a brother or a sister or a parent. Someone has to be reminded of being grounded in faith. Every single one of these brothers and sisters is addressed with prayer. We read the word, we spend time in prayer, reminding ourselves of where our power comes from, of all that God has done, what he can do, of his purpose, his plan. And so if you want to be reminded and not forget and experience the nature and character of God, spend time in the word, spend time in prayer. We have life groups set up all throughout the week so that we can be reminded that we are together in this. We are a family of missionary servants who are sent as disciples who make disciples. We have DNA groups set up so that we can be reminded from the scriptures of our ultimate identity and so that we can fight sin together. You're like, man, I need to be reminded in that way. You can go to our website. Come see me afterwards. We have those things set up intentionally so we will not fall away, so that our faith will be made sure through obedience and action. Here's what I want us to see from this passage this morning from Judges chapter three. We see that God answers the cries, our cries, with undeserved grace and in unexpected ways. God answers our cries with undeserved grace and in unexpected ways. The the first guy we had, Joshua, that kind of made sense. He was a a great leader. He looked amazing. He was fit. He was probably huge. He can go to battle. Then we get Ehud, who's a handicapped guy who only goes in with a dagger. We're like, man, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. You know what makes even less sense is Jesus Christ, who both of those guys are pointing to, who didn't come strong, strapping, big dude, who came victorious, but he came small. He was meek. He, he didn't have a marketing plan. He was humble. He wasn't Hollywood. 
people, his own people, from his very own hometown, hated him. He was despised. The most religious even put him to death. That's how Jesus came, to offer undeserved grace in an unexpected way. The second thing that we see here is that God is less concerned with your uh, ability than your availability. We think, man, I just, I can't do that. I, I, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could pray for that person. I don't know if I could speak to that person that way. I don't know if I could give that. I don't know if I could, um, if I could sacrifice in that way. Man, what, what is God calling you and asking you to do? Because we have resources. What, what did God tell the rich guy? He says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What does he tell the little boy that has two, two pieces of fish and five loaves of bread? He said, let's feed thousands. God doesn't need, he doesn't need Elon Musk's money. He needs our faithfulness and generosity. He needs our time. He doesn't say, hey man, when you, when you get retired, then you, can, then you can start living on mission. No, he needs our time now. We're all so busy, right? Everybody I talk to is so busy. But then the next conversation, hey, did you see the show on Netflix? I'm like, yeah, you are so busy. You're so busy. Are we making the best use of our time? We've all been gifted spiritually, spiritually, by the same spirit that enabled Ehud here, the same spirit that was given to Jesus Christ, which brought him back from the dead. He says, I want to give you gifts, not for yourself, but so that you can use those for the body and for the kingdom, for those who are lost around us. Are you being selfish with those things? Are you forsaking those gifts? Are you forsaking the gathering of yourselves? This is a community project. It's not an individual project. That's why here he speaks to people. The last thing that we see here in this passage is that God requires that you choose between left-handed weakness and right-handed strength. There's an option. Most of us, if we said, hey, who do you want to go fight for you? Would it be Ehud or, or Joshua? We're going to fight Ehud. But spiritually, we must choose between left-handed weakness and right-handed strength. You see, right-handed strength says, I want to prove to God my morality so that he will be happy with me. Left-handed weakness says, like Paul in Philippians chapter 3, that all of my spiritual and religious accolades are like dung. He had reached the top of the religious pinnacle. He says, all this is nothing. I want to receive the righteousness of Christ. That's what's required, but it must come from left-handed weakness. Some of us in, in, in right-handed strength say, I want to be in control. I want to use idols for my own sovereignty. I want to pick and choose what I give myself to so that I live a happier, more successful, more pleasurable life. That's selfish. I want to, I want to negotiate with idols so that I can live my best life now. But left-handed weakness says, no, I have nothing to offer God, and I know that idolatry always leads to slavery. That takes weakness, not strength. Right-handed strength it says, I want to live my life for my own personal satisfaction and pursuits until something bad happens in life, until bankruptcy hits or cancer or COVID or a threat of death. And then I need Jesus. I'm going to run to Jesus then. Is that, that's right-handed strength. Left-handed weakness says, sickness and death are not my greatest enemies, but sin and separation from God are. I want to rely and repent of my sin, rely on the grace of God for my restoration. Right-handed strength says, thank you, God, for my justification. Thank you for my right standing before you. Now I'll take care of the rest. Because in my sanctification, and in my holiness, if it's my efforts, guess who gets the glory? 
I do. But left hand and weakness says, the same power that saved me is the power that's going to sustain me. It's the power that's working in me and through me for the sake of my holiness and growing more and more like Christ. Brothers and sisters, abandon, abandon your salvation efforts because it is the right hand of strength that will keep you from faith. Get rid of the right hand of strength. Get rid of your efforts. You'll be much better without it. We see all throughout the book of Judges that God uses interesting different people, interesting different ways with interesting and weird different kinds of tools and abilities. We see here the Ehud, a handicapped dude. He uses a dagger on the wrong side of his body. Shamgar uses an ox goad. Gideon has torches and horns and defeats thousands. A guy in a couple of chapters named Jair, he, uh, he uses a hammer and beats people in the head. At the end, we see Samson, who uses the jawbone of a donkey. Are any of these things special or, or miraculous or crazy? No, they were obedient to God, and God used them. It was not their strength, but their weakness. The ultimate display of weakness instead of strength was Jesus Christ. He could have come in strength, and he is coming again in strength, but he came the first time in weakness rather than strength. He was, he was born in a manger rather than in a designer crib. His life was marked by defeat rather than victory. His ministry, people called it folly. They called it foolishness instead of human wisdom. He called people to come and die daily rather than to live your best life now. And on the cross, he delivered us from sin and from hell, not by some great triumph, but by agonizing defeat. But then Jesus Christ took the dagger of resurrection and stabbed it in the heart of death. God used what was weak to humble the strong. It's because of his strength and power that he has made us right with God. It's because of his mercy that even as we're still alive, and we would say, my faith is in Christ, even as we are still alive, we can pursue holiness and we can put to death the idols that we worship. And it's because of his grace that one day we will be with him forever, for all of eternity, glorified with Jesus Christ. It's his strength, not ours. And he asks us, commands us to respond in weakness. That's faith, that's repentance. It's my trust in someone or something else. And Jesus Christ says, I am strong. I am the king of kings. I have lived for you. I have died for you. There's going to be no greater display of love or strength than that. So we're left with a response this morning, brothers and sisters. Will we respond with right-handed strength, thinking that it's up to us, or left-handed weakness, resting in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? And if you've never done that before in your life, today is the day of salvation. And I would call on you to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn from your idols and place your faith wholly in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who has secured your past, your present and your future for his glory and his alone. And if you are a believer, make that salvation sure. Are you living a life of obedience and action? Or are you living for yourself, by yourself of your own power and glory? You have there... probably the greatest reminder that we have. I talked about other reminders earlier. This is the greatest physical, tangible reminder we have of the finished work of Jesus Christ. As you open the top layer there, that piece of plastic, you see a, a, a piece of bread-ish. 
It represents the body of Christ that was broken for us so that we could be made whole. This represents our surrender and our weakness. But Jesus told his disciples, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Be reminded day in, day out, week in, week out of who I am and what I've done for you. This is a reminder. He says, take and eat all of it. After peeling off the next layer of aluminum foil, that's what the Greek means. Jesus said, after they had done that, he says, take this cup of wine or of juice that we have here. This represents the the blood of Christ that was shed for us. His life was poured out so that we could experience life eternal. That's the good news of the gospel. He says, if you want to experience strength, then you must be made low. He was made low so that we could be made strong. He says, take and drink ye all of it. Father, we thank you that you have been gracious to us in so many ways. We thank you that as we look at the lives of these three men, we know that you are the one who is powerful. You are the one who reigns supreme. We're reminded that we are but gnats, but worms, but flies. Yet you choose to use us. And as we saw in Ephesians a little bit earlier, that it's not because of what we bring to the table it's not our ability, but it's our availability. I pray that we would be used by you. I pray for those in this room who are, are thinking in the back of their minds that, that they're so dirty and jacked up and messed up that you couldn't even use them because of something that's been done to them or uh, a situation they've been born into or something that they've done in their lives. I pray that you would remind them to, to look at the pages of scripture and look at these guys, look at these ladies They were nothing apart from you. It was your spirit. It was your power on them. And you want to use us in mighty ways. I pray that we would be an available, obedient, willing, action-oriented people. Remind us of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Remind us of who you've called us to be. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 